Our message title for today is, Which Way Will You Choose? Which Way Will You Choose? In this passage, the writer to the Hebrews, he presents them with two choices. He presents them with two ways from which they must choose. The first way he presents to them, the first choice is this. It is the way of salvation. The way of salvation. He says, beginning in verse 19, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Before the death of Christ, only the high priest could go beyond the veil and enter into the Holy of Holies. And he would need to bring a blood sacrifice with him, and that only once a year on the Day of Atonement. But now, since Christ has died and has completed the sacrifice for our forgiveness, he has opened a new way to direct access to God, giving every believer access to God the Father. There is no other way to salvation. Christ alone brings us into the very presence of God. And secondly, he says, not only Christ has opened the way of salvation to us, he highlights the way he did it. He says, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. The high priests of old, they needed to bring, as I said, a blood sacrifice with them for them to go into the presence of God. But Jesus was superior than all other high priests because he didn't bring an animal sacrifice with him. He didn't bring the blood of animals to bring us into the presence of God that needed to be continued over and over again. But he was the great and perfect high priest because he offered himself. He gave his own life. He became the sacrifice and the sacrificer. He offered himself to bring us into the presence of God. And so now he says, now that Christ has opened the way of salvation for us, he says, let us draw near to God. Let us draw near to God. He is inviting them to receive salvation, having proven that Jesus Christ opened the way to salvation to all who believe in what he did. The Bible tells us that he says, let us draw near to God. In verse 22, he says, let us draw near. And he tells them exactly how we must receive salvation. How we must come to God to, to enter the way of salvation that Christ has opened for us. In first place, he says, we must draw near to God for salvation with a sincere heart. That means with a repentant heart, with a heart of repentance. Once we hear the gospel for the first time, it brings first bad news to us that our sins were separating us from the presence of God. And once we hear that, we feel, we, we feel the weight of our sins, how they separate us from God and His holiness. And it is, it is at that point that the Holy Spirit of God brings repentance into, into our lives. We repent of our lifestyle. We repent of our lives of the past. And now, not only with a repentant heart we come to God, but he says, also in full assurance of faith. That is, we must truly believe, we must completely trust that what Christ did for us at Calvary's cross was more than sufficient to bring us to God and to forgive us of all of our sins. And he says, 
having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Until we truly believe that what Christ did for us at the cross was sufficient to forgive us, to erase all of our sins, our past sins, our present sins, and even our future sins, until we believe that Christ has done sufficiently for us at the cross, our conscience is evil. In the sense that our conscience continues to accuse us from our past sins. But once we place faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior and trust that He has forgiven us, we receive relief through a clean conscience. And lastly, he says, let us draw near to God for salvation, having our bodies washed with pure water. Having our bodies washed with pure water. Water here represents the cleansing of sanctification. We are saved in one moment, but we are sanctified for a lifetime. When we are saved, our bodies, our existence is washed through the Holy Spirit at that moment. When He comes to indwell us, when He comes to be with us, as we are saved at that moment. But has anyone here, have you only taken a bath or taken a shower only once in your entire lifetime? If you did, that wouldn't be a pretty picture. But we know that we wash our bodies regularly. So it is the message regarding the water of sanctification. We are saved in a moment, but we are sanctified for a lifetime. If salvation happens, sanctification follows. If I say that I am saved, but no fruit of sanctification is seen in my life, I may be self-deceived. According to the, the words of the Bible in 1 John in chapter 3, where the Bible says, Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. Anyone who practices sin, anyone whose lifestyle is dominated and controlled by sin, never mind that the person claims to be saved, that person is still under the dominion of the devil. However, the Bible tells us if my life is dominated and controlled by the practice of righteousness, seeking, pursuing holiness before God, the Bible says that I can have certainty of salvation. Now, please understand this does not mean that once we are saved, we are sinless and perfect. We do sin, even after we have become saved. What he is saying is that once we are saved, the Holy Spirit who comes to abide within us, he convicts us all the way for us not to have a life that is dominated and controlled and characterized by sin. We are not sinless, but we do sin less. He says in second place, let us hold fast to our hope. Let us hold fast to our hope. In verse 23, he says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He is saying that as believers, we must persevere. He was telling them, if you are going to receive salvation, if you are going to truly become Christians, you must persevere despite the persecution. This verse points to the true reality that perseverance is one of the telltale signs that you are truly saved. I repeat, perseverance is one of the most telling signs that you truly belong to the Lord. You don't quit on your faith no matter what you are going through. 
Those who do not belong to Christ, they may even begin to come to church, but times of tribulation come in their lives, and it is at that point that they show their true face and they abandon Christianity. They abandon their walk of Christ. These are those of whom I know I have mentioned to you many times, of those whom the Lord Jesus speaks of in the parable of the soils in Luke in chapter 8 verse 13, where he says, those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, they receive the word with joy. But these have no firm root. They believe for a while. Their faith is not true saving faith. They believe for a while, but in the time of temptation, they fall away. They receive the word with joy that they would have health and wealth and peace. They receive the word with joy that their best life would be now. They receive the word with joy because Jesus was going to make them rich. But when reality sets in, they show to be never saved. He says, let us not do so. Let us persevere. And he says, without wavering. Let us not vacillate and continue to walk with one foot in the world and one foot in the church. Let us be determined to continue to follow the Lord no matter what is happening. For he who promised is faithful. If God has called you to salvation, he will be faithful and he will not let you, he will not abandon you midway. What does the Bible say in, in Philippians in chapter 1 in verse 6? That he who has begun a good work within us, he will abandon us halfway. No. He who has begun a good work within us, he will complete it to the day of Christ. To the day of the rapture. The Lord is with us until the moment that he will take us to be with him in heaven. Lastly, he says, let us not forsake our assembly. Let us not forsake our assembly. Beginning in verse 24, he says, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together. In the same way that perseverance is a telltale sign that you are truly saved, faithfulness in attending a local church is also an important sign that you have received salvation. Now please understand, if you attend church, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are saved. But if you are saved, you will attend church. Do you see the difference? He is saying, let us not forsake our assembling. If we choose the way of salvation, we must gather together and be in church fellowship because that is the will of God. Instead, some were doing this. Not forsaking our own assembling as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another as, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. He says, as is the habit of some. If their habit was to stop coming to church, when things became difficult, that could be a telltale sign that they were never saved in first place. He says, as it is the habit of some. The Bible tells us in 1 John in chapter 2, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they, are, that they all are not of us. Of course, obviously, the writer is not speaking of those true Christians who leave one church to join another for all good reasons. He is speaking of people 
who abandoned the church to go nowhere, to stay at home, either because they were scandalized by something, either because they don't like the preacher, I don't like you, preacher, I, I, they don't like the music, they don't like the seats, the pews, the benches, whatever it is. Be that as it may, the Bible tells us that if I am saved, that if I am a Christian, God will open the way for me to be fellowshipping within a local church. There are no excuses that can keep you home. Of course, those who for health reasons cannot come to church, they are the exception. If you are shut in, if you are bedridden, if you are homebound, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about those who are healthy enough to go to work or to go to school, there is no excuse to keep you at home on the day of the Lord and on the days of church services. Because the Bible says that it is the will of God for you to not forsake the assembling of the saints together. There are no excuses. And you say, there are no good churches today. There are, there are no good churches in my neighborhood. If God called you for salvation, God will open the door for you to see and and go to a church where he has called you to be. God is not going to contradict his word. You better go to your knees and pray and come back to church fellowship. He says, as is the habit of some, let us not do so. But let us become faithful members of a local church. And as such, he says that there are two things that we must do. If we choose the way of salvation, and in doing so, we become faithful members of a local church, two things we must do. First, he says, consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Now, the idea here is not so much as how you can stimulate someone else to love. It's not so much how you can convince someone to love. How can you force someone to love? You're not going to grab him by the shoulders and say, you must love me. That's not the idea here. The idea here is about you and me. Considering them, considering others, thinking of others, will stimulate us to love them and do good works for them. And when other people see how on fire we are for God, and how sold out we are for God in doing things for others, they will see our example, and perhaps, just perhaps, they will too be stimulated to follow our example and begin to, do, to love others and do good deeds for them as well. But secondly, he says, let us also encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. One way for us to do this as faithful believers, faithful members in a local church is to reach out to those whom we have noticed that they have been absent from church in a long time. Only God knows how far it will go as you are used by the Spirit of God to give him a phone call, to write him a card, to send him a text saying, hey, I'm, I haven't seen you in church lately. Is there anything specifically that I can pray for you? I'm here for you. Is there anything that I can do to help you? Encouraging them to come back to church. He says, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What day? The day of Christ. The day when he returns for the rapture. Because if I have abandoned church fellowship because I am not saved, when the rapture comes, I will be left behind. 
And he says that we must encourage one another that perhaps some who have abandoned the faith, they can be retrieved back. They can be brought back as we will see. It is only by the mercies of God. But we must continue to encourage those, especially those who one day were fellowshipping with us in the church. And now we know that they have never come back. Only God knows what will happen to them and the status of their spiritual walk before the Lord. And so he explains to them on how to choose the way of salvation. Let us draw near to God. Let us hold fast to our hope and let us not forsake our assembly. Having said how to attain the way of salvation, how to believe in Christ for salvation, he then gives them the only other option, the only other choice available. And that is the way of perdition. The way of perdition. He says in verse 26, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and a fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. He says, if we go on sinning willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There is no salvation for me. Now, when he says, if we go on sinning willfully, what is he talking about? He cannot be possibly talking, be talking about sinning in general. Because unfortunately, all of us must admit that we have sinned even after we became saved. Obviously, he's speaking about one very specific sin. And he's talking about the sin of apostasy. To abandon the faith. When one, he has heard the gospel... He has understood the message of the gospel. He has accepted the message of the gospel. He has professed to have faith in Jesus Christ. He begins to attend church regularly. He is even baptized. But now, because of tribulations in his life or in her life, they leave church. They deny God. They deny Christ. They think of those years or those months in which they were in, in church as nonsense, as when they were out of their minds. It was just a phase. And now they deny Jesus. They deny they even believe in the Bible. To them, there is no salvation. The Bible tells us that they have apostatized. They have completely abandoned the faith. Sometimes we call them backsliders. They were in church one day, but something along the way happened, and they abandoned their faith, their walk of faith completely. The writer says, to the, for them, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. If they give up on Christ, they have no alternative. There isn't a new gospel. There isn't a new salvation. There isn't a new Christ. They are lost for good. The only thing that remains for them is the judgment of an eternal fire in hell. If they have understood the message of the gospel, 
They have come to church. They have professed to believe. And now for whatever reason, they deny the truth of the Bible. They deny Christ. They deny the faith. The only thing that remains is judgment of eternity separated from God. As the Bible says, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but only a terrifying expectation of judgment. Now please understand that when the Bible says that the only thing that remains is a terrifying expectation of judgment, the writer is not talking about the apostate. It is not the apostate who has a terrifying expectation of judgment, because if he had, he would not have abandoned the faith in first place. He will be terrified with the judgment once he receives it. And he realizes that there is no escape from hell. But he is not terrified with the expectation of it. The ones who are terrified with the expectation of judgment are you and me. We are terrified of the expectation of judgment for them. Because we realize that if they don't come back to Christ, they are lost for eternity. And it is sad of so many of us, we know so many who were in church, perhaps our, even our own children, who grew up in church, who attended a Christian school, who were baptized. But once they grew up and became too cool, and Christianity simply was not an attraction for them, I cannot tell you how often and how regularly my wife and I pray for those in our own family who are in this same situation. They were once in church. They were even baptized. But now they are more in the world now than before coming to church. It is a sad picture, especially considering what the Bible tells us. We have that terrifying expectation of judgment for them because they are just one breath away from eternity separated from God. May God have mercy on them. May God have mercy on our children, on our parents, on our friends, on our neighbors, those whom we know are walking that very thin and dangerous and tenuous life of being one breath away from a Christless eternity. He says the only thing that is left, it is a terrifying expectation of judgment for us to have because of them and for them the only thing that is left is a fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries the writer here is quoting Isaiah chapter 26 verse 11 where those who reject God are considered to be his enemies his adversaries and it is a terrifying thing when one becomes God's enemy you cannot win He says, confirming what he had said in those verses, in verse 30 and 31, he says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. As all good preachers do, the writer quotes the Bible to support his message. He is quoting here Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 35 and 36. And he says, if anyone falls into the hand of God for that judgment because they knew the gospel, 
They begin to enjoy church fellowship and now they abandon it all. It is a terrifying thing for them to have fallen into the hands of the living God. That word terrifying in the original means something that causes great fear. Something that causes a person to be greatly afraid. And that word terrifying only appears three times in the New Testament. All three times in this letter to the Hebrews. Twice in this chapter alone. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In case anyone would say God is too harsh in doing so. He says in verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. If anyone were to say, oh preacher, writer to the Hebrews, you are saying that God will not have mercy on any soul. Perhaps God in the end will say, ah, I changed my mind, let everybody come to heaven. Nobody's going to go to hell. It is too harsh to go to hell for eternity. How can that be true? God is love. But God is also holy and just. To refute that argument, he says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He is referring to the fact that according to the Old Testament, there were 16 sins. When they were committed, they, that God demanded capital punishment. On the testimony with the evidence of just two or three witnesses, according to Deuteronomy chapter 17 verse 6. There were 16 sins that when committed with witnesses, there was no death roll. There was no 10 years of appeals. People would just grab some heavy rocks and let them have it. The judgment was immediate and without mercy. For anyone who committed those 16 sins included in them were murder, adultery, rape, even disobedience to parents. There were some very well-behaved teenagers during those times, let me tell you. He says, if anyone who committed those 16 sins would die without mercy, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? How much more punishment do you think he or she will deserve who have heard of the gospel, have heard of all that Jesus Christ did for them, and now they deny everything about Christ? He says they have trampled underfoot the Son of God. He is referring to the ancient, to the ancient customs of conquerors who would step on the necks of their defeated foes. He's saying those who do not believe in Christ anymore and abandon their faith, it is as though they are stumping on the neck of Christ in mockery of what he did, in mockery of God. Not only that, he says, and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. When I abandon my faith in Christ, I am saying that the blood of Jesus is not holy. I'm saying that the blood of Jesus is sinful, is good for nothing, and that is really blasphemous. And when he says that the apostate has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, notice that I included he with capital H there. 
Because it cannot be in reference to the apostate being sanctified and then losing his salvation. Because the Bible tells us through and through that if you are saved, you cannot lose your salvation. Obviously, the writer is referring to he there as Jesus Christ. That Christ was sanctified. That he was set apart to be our sacrifice for our forgiveness and for our salvation. And lastly, he says, If I abandon the Lord, I have also insulted the Spirit of grace. Grace that will give me salvation. Not because I deserve, but as an unmerited favor, as an unmerited gift. He says, if you believe that God is being too harsh with this, in the Old Testament there were 16 sins, less than denying Christ, for which anyone would commit them would die without mercy. How much severe punishment do you think will deserve those who have sinned against all three persons of the Trinity? You have sinned against God the Father for stomping on the neck of his son. You have sinned against God the Son saying that his blood was filthy and sinful. And you have sinned against God the Holy Spirit insulting the spirit of grace. There is no salvation for those who turn their backs on Christ. Having explained to them the way of salvation and having explained to them the only other option which is the way of perdition, he makes one final plea to them. He pleads with his readers once again. In first place, he says, remember the former days. Remember the former days. He says in verse 32, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. He's telling them, remember when you were a novice in the faith, when you professed to have faith, and you seemed to be so much in fire, on fire for Christ? Remember those times when you couldn't stop talking about Him? Remember that during those times, you suffered already. You were suffering then. Don't give up now. Continue with the same fervor, proving that indeed you were saved. Because if you don't, there is no salvation for you. But remember your former days that you were suffering, but you remained perseverant. You were faithful. When after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. Obviously, when he says that they were enlightened, once again, it cannot mean that they were saved. It simply means that they understood the message of the gospel. They obtained head knowledge, but not heart knowledge. They did not receive the Holy Spirit within them for salvation. They were enlightened in the same way that the writer had warned them in the previous warning in Hebrews in chapter 6. When he says, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they crucify, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. They heard of the gospel, they understood the message, but they were never saved. And notice he says, during those days, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. What sufferings is he referring to? That they had to endure. That they originally, initially, they persevered through. He says, 
partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. In first place, the sufferings that they had endured and persevered through were, to beco were becoming a public spectacle. They had been publicly humiliated through persecution that they endured initially. They were beaten. They were tortured. And they persevered at the beginning. And not only that, once they went through the public humiliation, some of them, those who had not suffered the same things, he says, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. Those who had not become publicly humiliated because they professed to have faith in Christ, they became partners with them by trying to help them. By associating themselves with them, by trying to do something for those who are being so publicly humiliated in that sense. How did they try to help them? He says in verse 34, For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. They tried to help those who had been publicly humiliated and thrown into the prisons just because of their faith. They became sharers with them. They became partners with them because they tried to help them in prison. And not only that, because they associated with them who had been sent to prison, who had been persecuted because of their faith, they lost everything that they possessed. They lost their homes. They lost their belongings. They lost everything. And yet the Bible says, the writer tells them, in the beginning, you accepted that joyfully. You didn't quit. Knowing that God would provide for you an even better possession in heaven. And an eternal one. Folks, I don't know about you, but this verse lets me know the level of faithfulness and perseverance that God expects from each and every one of us. These people were not quitting the faith because they had a hangnail. Because they had a scraped knee. They lost everything. They lost their homes. They lost their belongings. But now it simply was becoming too much for them. This shows to me what the Lord Jesus means in Matthew 16, 24. When he says, if anyone wants to follow after me, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross and then follow me. It shows to me what the Lord means in Luke chapter 14 verses 25 through 33. That we must count the cost if we truly mean to be his disciple. What would you do if you were in that situation? If you went home today and a government official were to knock at your door saying, Listen, Congress has just passed a new law. Christians can no longer be homeowners. You either deny Jesus right now or we're going to take your house from you. What would you do? Of course, for us in America, this is an absurd situation. But it was not for them 2,000 years ago. It was reality. This is exactly what happened. And they resisted at the beginning. And you would think that the writer of the Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, would say, Oh, you poor thing. You lost everything because of your faith? So perhaps it's okay if you take a break. If you go on the down low and you, you, you don't have to 
be a faithful Christian anymore because you are suffering too much. You lost everything. Uh-uh. What he said was, if you step away from Christ now and deny him because of what you are suffering, there will be no salvation for you. Oh my God. Would I be that faithful if that happened to me? Would you? That shows me that God allows suffering to come into our lives to separate those who are real from the fake. Only those who are real can persevere and endure through all this. And you may say, preacher, I don't know if I will be that faithful. I don't know if I would have this level of perseverance in my life. Ah, rest assured. Let me share, uh, let me share a secret with you. In Romans in chapter 15, in verse 5, the Bible says, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. When the moment comes, if God allows that moment to come into your life, you don't have to come up with the perseverance yourself. But at that moment, God will give you supernatural perseverance that no matter what is happening to you, you will not deny that you know the Lord. God gives supernatural perseverance. And this is the secret of the martyrs. How can anyone be stoned to death and not deny him? Because God gives perseverance and encouragement. How can anyone be crucified and do not deny him? Because God gives perseverance and encouragement. How can anyone agree to be burned alive and don't deny him? Because God gives encouragement and perseverance. God forbid that this circumstance would come to our lives. But if God ever allows you to go through what they went through, if you are saved, God will give you all the perseverance you need. And you will not walk back on your faith. This verse also shows us and proves that those who do walk away because of tribulations, like Jesus said in the parable of the soils, they fall away. It's because they never belong to God in first place because God is faithful in his promises. He says, if, if I am saved, I am... He says, he will also give me perseverance and encouragement no matter what. But if I abandon my faith in Christ, I never belong to him. For this reason, the Bible says in Revelation 21, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The Lord gives this list of those who will suffer eternity in the eternal fire of hell. And you think that the first ones mentioned in this list would be the murderers, would be the immoral, would be the liars. But the first ones had in this list are who? The cowardly. The ones who knew the gospel. They knew what Christ did for them. And they say, eh, I don't want this anymore. And they turn their backs on Christ. For them, 
there is no salvation. In his final plea, he says one more thing at the end. Do not throw away your confidence. Do not throw away your confidence. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. He says, do not throw away your confidence. I understand you are suffering. I understand you are losing everything. But be faithful to the Lord and do not quit on Him. But remain with confidence. And that word confidence there means bravery, means courage, means boldness. No matter what, do not quit on your faith. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. You have need of endurance. You have need of perseverance. Persevere to do the will of God. And what is the will of God? That you persevere no matter what. So that you may receive what was promised, the salvation of your soul. It is simple. If you persevere, you are saved. If you don't, you never belong to him. This is what Christ said himself in Matthew 10, 22. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has persevered, who has endured to the end, who will be saved. In Luke chapter 21, verse 19, the Lord says similarly, By your perseverance, you gain your souls, you save your souls. It is the Lord who saves us. And the greatest revealing time, Christ confirms here, perseverance is one of the most important signs that you are truly saved. He says in verse 37 and 38, For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Once again, the writer, the preacher, is quoting the scripture once again in Isaiah and Habakkuk to prove the same point. That if I turn my back on Christ, there is no salvation for me. If I shrink back, if I apostatize, if I backslide, there is no salvation left. I have given proof that I never belonged to him in first place. My soul, the Lord says, has no pleasure in him. And then in our final verse, it is like a summary of the entire warning. It is like a summary of this terrifying warning that we have learned. In verse 39, he says, But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but we are of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. He tells them, If you choose the way of perdition, there is only eternal destruction for you. But if you continue, if you choose the way of salvation, your faith will be revealed. Your perseverance will show that you do belong to the Lord. He says, keep your faith and never give up. And that is the reason why in the very next chapter, chapter 11, he gives them the hall of fame of faith. Where he mentions all those servants of God who suffered so much, but they persevered in the faith. Brothers and sisters, before we pray, this passage, this warning, as I said, it is indeed one of the most terrifying in all of scriptures. And the writer to the Hebrews gives the, his readers a sense of finality, a sense of fatality. If any one of them had already abandoned their faith, we have the sense that there was no hope. They had no salvation. They were on the brink 
of eternal hell. We are left with the thought, how about those in our own family, our own acquaintances, your child, your father, your mother, your daughter, your son. They once were in church or even baptized, but now they are no longer here. They are no longer attending church. Is God saying that there is absolutely no hope for them? No. The writer to the Hebrews gives them no alternative because we must understand the context. He's trying to instill in them the fear of God for them not to take the final step of finally apostatizing. But the Bible does give us a word of hope. In James in chapter 5, the Bible says, My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, they can be brought back. And is brought back. You can be sure that whoever brings that sinner back from wandering will save that person from eternal death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. There is hope. There is hope. You and I just don't know which one. If that person is someone who has apostatized for good and there is unfortunately no hope for him, for her. Or if it is someone who by the mercies of God, they can be saved from death. Therefore, do not despair. Continue praying for him. Continue praying for her. There is hope in the word of God that they can be brought back. I can only ask you as we pray, which way will you choose? In a moment, a church leader will be praying for you. If you had never received Christ as your Savior, make this the day when you repent of your sins and receive Jesus Christ as your only Lord and Savior. But I would like to pray now specifically for those of you here in the church. Perhaps you were invited. Perhaps someone prayed for you and you finally came back. For those of you listening right now, through a recording or watching this online. I want to pray for you specifically who once were in church and something happened along the way and you have abandoned your walk with God. Let this be the day when you come back to the Lord. You are not listening to these words by chance. Let this be the day that God has made this encounter with you and convicting you once and for all. Come back to Christ. Come back to the Lord. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your mercies. For your mercies that are new each and every morning. For your mercies that are the cause of us not being consumed. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy in our lives, O oh God. And I pray specifically for those who once were in church, were in fellowship with you. Perhaps they were even baptized, but now, Lord, they have abandoned you. Father, some way, somehow, salvation is a miracle. And we pray to the God of miracles that you will be working in their souls and their hearts right now, that they would wake up, Father, and that they will be convicted that they need you in their lives. That even now, Lord, that they will bow themselves and plead with you to forgive them, O oh God. Let them come back to you. Father, we pray for our children. We pray for our parents. We pray for our friends. 
God have mercy on those who have known the gospel and they are one breath away from eternity without you. Lord, have mercy. May your blessings, may your repentance, may your salvation be with them once and for all. As we pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. I'm sure you all share the same sentiment as me, but wow. That one hit you right between the eyes. I know it did for me. Um, the, t the title of this message was, Which Way Will You Choose? And we always like to take this opportunity at the end of, um, at the end of service to, to give you that opportunity to choose salvation. And we hope that you will. And I, I don't know that I could do any justice to what Pastor Gilson just preached. Um, but let me say this. Do not walk out those doors. If you heard this message and you know that you're not part of that salvation group, you're part of the other group, don't stamp your foot on the neck of the Lord. Don't, because you know there is no mercy um, for those that die without salvation. That's a tough thing to hear, right? We don't want to hear that. Like he said, God is love. We all get at the end, yeah, come on into heaven. If only that were true, but it's not. It's not true. Um, so don't walk out those doors. Brother Mike Bronner is up here. I'll be up here. Um, find one of the other elders, one of the, um, one of the deacons, or somebody who brought you, and find out about this. Say that that prayer and mean it in your heart. So it's one thing to just know it. It's another thing if you mean it in your heart. And then you have to persevere, right? But I, I love the line that he said. We can't do it on our own. We wouldn't want to do it. If there's someone, if they came and knocked on my door and said, we're taking away your house, denounce the Lord, I'd like to say that I would say no, um, that I would hand them over the keys. But I don't think I could do it on my own. But I don't have to do it on my own, right? God gives us that strength. So don't, let, don't walk out those doors without knowing that you have that salvation. It's a free gift. Accept it. So let us pray. Father God, we come before you this morning, Lord. We are so grateful. We are so thankful for your mercy and your grace. Father, thank you for sending your son to die for our sins. Lord, we know that we were separated. Our sin separated us from you. But Father, the blood of your son cleansed us. So Father, we thank you for that. We praise you for that. Like Paul said in worship earlier, we'll be singing your praises forever in heaven, for all eternity. So Father, thank you. We praise you. We love you. We just lift all these prayers up in the name of our Lord and our Savior and our King, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.